Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to another episode of Best of Health Radio, brought to you by Bar Regis, Ask the PA. I'm over the top excited about this particular show tonight because there's two people in front of me that I feel have been instrumental in actually helping save my life. And I'd like to introduce this to you all today, Beth Lopez and Dr. Neil Fernandez. Let's start with Beth. Tell us a little bit about your background, Beth, and how you became a PA. Well, I started years and years ago as a candy striper at Boswell Hospital. And then I became a nurse's aide at, while I was going to nurse's school. I went to, a, to ASU, became an RN, worked in hospitals, and then taught a little bit of MCC. Nice. And then there was a, another nurse that said, hey, I'm going to go to PA school. You should do that too. And I had been thinking about it before. And the, only, the closest school was UCLA. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to go that far. And then when they started building schools here, I thought, oh, okay. Uh, so then I applied. Um, I called, the first one I called said, hey, we're, our deadline is in two weeks. You have to put your application in. And they said, you can do it. So I went around and got my transcripts and applied and um, got an interview like pretty fast. Right on. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I ended up being a PA. Well, the profession loves you. And, and Dr. Doctor Fernandez, Neil, um, tell us a little bit about your story, like your background. Sure. So I grew up in New Jersey, in Wayne, New Jersey, about 30 minutes from New York City. My okay. father's a physician, actually. My sister is a physician. My father's a pathologist. My sister's a uh, radiation oncologist. Genetic Yeah. My, <laughs> my mother has two brothers that are physicians as well. My mother's father was a physician. So, I mean, I came from a family, you know, where medicine was in our blood to a certain degree. But, you know, that being said, I, when I went to college, I was a biology minor and an economics major. So I was an economics major and a biology minor. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I was pre-med, but ended up working in finance briefly in New York City. So... I worked as an investment banker for a little while oh, before wow. I became a physician, which is unusual, not, not, yeah. not unheard of. I do have a friend, few colleagues, friends who've done similar things. But, you know, I did my pre-med, I did my pre-med requirements at Columbia, where I went to undergrad in New York City, okay. then, you know, decided that I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to go to medical school despite doing my requirements. And after that, I ended up taking a job in finance. I did some internships at Solomon Smith Barney, other places like that. I ended up working at Bank of Montreal mm-hmm. in healthcare investment banking predominantly. And then it decided it, within a few months, it just wasn't for me and applied to medical school and was, you know, I was on the fence about it still to a certain degree, but I was lucky enough to get a scholarship actually to New Jersey Medical School, which awesome. is my state school, which, you know, really made the decision a lot easier because it was a lot less tuition, a lot less mm-hmm. money to do it. And that really solidified it for me. And went there and, you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do in terms of a career. My father was a pathologist and he always influenced me to a certain degree being a pathologist. But, you know, it's funny, related to that scholarship program, the way I decided on dermatology, or at least the way it got into my head as a potential career or potential field subspecialty was I was doing a uh, phonathon to try to raise money for the scholarship program that I was involved in. And mm-hmm. no one was donating money. A lot of the alumni were saying, you know, they weren't happy with the state of medicine, yada, yada, weren't excited about, you know, giving money back to the school. But this one guy I got on the phone with is, you know, says that he'll donate $500. And then we start talking just about um, random things. And he, 
And I tells, he asks me, you know, he tells me to ask him what he does. And he says he's a dermatologist. And he said, you know, we're the happiest physicians out there. And... <laughs> you know, I think you guys actually are. <laughs> I, I, and it's primary care, like, not a lot of call. Like, yeah, pretty nice hours. Yeah. You know, he said you could do things, you know, like surgery, <laughs> you know, skin checks, treat skin cancer. It's gratifying. You can do cosmetics, aesthetics. There's an element of, you know, not having the tip, uh, the type of lifestyle that a neurosurgeon let's, has, right, let's say, right. where... They'll be on call or have to go to the hospital at two in the morning, but you also get mm-hmm. to help a lot of people because, you know, as I guess this show probably focuses on skin cancer is rampant in this country and, right. you know, you get to make a real difference. And that got me interested in dermatology and I haven't looked back since and ended up doing a residency in dermatology. And I think, part of it, you know, my father's influence being a general pathologist sort of led me to do dermatopathology as well. So. That's sort of where I more or less split my time doing dermatology and dermatopathology. So it's a nice, yeah. nice balance too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you really, you know, especially for your own patients, when you, you know, have a potential diagnosis that you're thinking of, and then mm-hmm. you confirm it, that's must be really, really war- rewarding. It, it is. It's really exciting. You know, that's what got me interested in dermatopathology specifically. Mm-hmm the clinical pathologic correlation element where you see something on somebody's skin visually and then you correlated what you see under the microscope and the reproducibility mm-hmm. of confirming what you see on someone's skin, you know, with microscopic findings, you know, I found really addicting. And you know, very cool. it, was, it was really, really neat. So, yeah. so Beth, I met you at Skin and Cancer Center of Arizona. We used to, I used to have an office in the building on the first oh, floor yes. where LabCorp is. And that's how I met Beth. Yeah. How did you end up in dermatology? With Dr. Walk, I actually had been working in a different field when I first got out of school. Uh-huh. I was it was kind of a non-surgical orthopedics kind of a rehab sports medicine kind of a thing, and a friend of mine who had gone to school with me had been working at Skin and Cancer Center and mm-hmm. said, "Hey, there's an opening coming up. Would you like to apply?" And I had done a derm um, rotation in school, um, and I liked it. I like the hands-on aspect of it. And so I said, sure. So I applied and Dr. Wilk hired me. And so. you've been there ever since. And <laughs> it was a good call on his part as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad. So, you know, um, what really turned you on about dermatology? What is the thing that you really, really dig? I mean, are you into the discovering the cancer part of it? Or are you into the aesthetic part of it? Are you into both? I mean, what what excites you? Well, I probably not as much the aesthetic part of it, mm-hmm. probably more the medical part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, catching things that are like really small melanomas mm-hmm. or things that really don't look much like a basil and they really are, you know, <laughs> that's pretty fun. It's And, and for just, us, yeah, for, for us in primary care, it seems like these lesions are looking so much different these days. And a lot of times I'm like, hey, you know, I go to the dermatologist, they see them, they work with them, they touch them, they feel them all day long. You know, this just looks weird. Let's, you know, check it out. And so we're, you know, it's it's so, so important. What is it with people, though, when they think about dermatology? Now, because of my journey, I think of cancers, right? But a lot of people still think of the aesthetics. Like, I'm going to go to the dermatologist. And I'm going to get a, uh, a facial peel and I'm going to get this and this and this. And it almost feels like the marketing sometimes for dermatology kind of goes that direction. Why is that? I'm kind of thinking that uh, that's what, what purely a say? cash, you know. That's yeah, because it's a cash, right? Right. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, I'm, and I'm kind of curious about it. When people go for those kind of procedures, is there any chance with them going for those procedures that the, you uh, diagnosis could actually be missed because they're getting like chemical peels and different types of things from not necessarily even the dermatologist's office, but like an esthetician oh. or something like that? 
I've definitely seen cases like that where, you know, someone thought they had a sunspot that was getting frozen mm-hmm. consistently by a non-dermatologist mm-hmm. or a non-dermatology provider and ended up being an early melanoma or mm-hmm. melanoma in situ. So, that, I mean, there's reason. There's a reasonable number of cases like that. So that uh-huh. certainly can happen if someone is focusing more on the aesthetic part of it or not a board-certified dermatologist or not, you know, trained in dermatology and just purely practicing aesthetics. So there is an element, you know, certainly related to what you're saying where sometimes, you know, I think marketing dermatology is a purely aesthetic field Mm -hmm. is, you know, does a disservice to the field in a way because it's better to have a comprehensive approach because some of these things you know that we think are nothing you know or just sunspots can actually exactly right correct and the, and the reason i kind of dove into that a little bit was because mm-hmm. we're seeing more and more skin cancers right sure. and we're seeing skin cancers in earlier ages and so like what i like to do is kind of like take someone through a journey we could even use my journey a little bit as an example okay what should people be doing i mean there's people out there that have this feeling that skin cancer is not any big deal. Like, oh, it's skin cancer. Just get over it. That kind of thing. You know, tell me a little bit about, okay, sun protection, vitamin D, you know, where do people start? Should they be using sunscreen? Should they not be using sunscreens? Well, skin cancer is the most common cancer in the world, in the U.S. So it is is an epidemic. There's 5.4 million cases of skin cancer you know, in the world, in the U.S., excuse me, 5.4 million cases in the U.S. that are diagnosed annually, three pe- three million people diagnosed annually with skin cancer. Now, melanoma, there's about 180,000 cases of melanoma diagnosed. I mean, it, it happens very, very commonly. One out of five uh, Americans will go on to develop skin cancer. And a statistic that I've heard that I haven't corroborated that I've heard those one out of three Caucasian People in America will develop skin cancer. I mean, those are startling statistics to me. And and it just seems like we should be getting the word out a lot more that maybe, uh, you know, with the evidence that we do skin cancer screening as something just like a colonoscopy down the road. It's as important. But for some reason, it just doesn't seem to get the PR. What do you think, Beth? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I definitely think that people need to be getting their skins checked regularly. And most people think that they're under the misimpression that if the sun is not hitting their part of their skin, that they're not at risk for getting skin cancer there. And that's simply not true. Right. So um, people all the time tell me, oh, I'm not going to take off my pants. I, I Sun never gets there. <laughs> and, right. they don't, and I tell them, you know, the skin cancer can develop on places that don't get this, not from the sun. But, right. but the media seems to tell everybody that it's the sun, which is true it does cause skin cancer but you can also have a gene mutate and develop it in other places and i think we're seeing more and more of that i remember um about eight years ago i actually had a patient come to the office and saw her i was doing her uh, pap exam and she actually had clitoral melanoma it was like eight years ago Mm -hmm. and it was crazy and and for me it was like wow that was a place that sun doesn't shine and then that's when i really woke up to how much of this is genetic versus sun exposure versus a combination of both. When we're talking about, you know, really all three forms of skin cancer that we're going to talk about, we're not just talking about melanoma, we're talking about squamous cell. We're actually, I, I would believe, and if I'm wrong, because I'm a primary care provider, but we're talking basils too, mm. right? You know, there are other types of skin cancer besides those three, right? Yeah, <laughs> but they're not as common, right? Right, they're more right. rare, that's true. Yeah, so, and we'll we'll talk about your big <laughs> rare bird down the road. Um, so, a person is basically, you know, in the shower and they are 
do you guys recommend to everybody that they do skin self exams and their partners? Yes, right. Absolutely. So let's talk about that real quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, half of melanomas are actually self-detected, which mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know. So, I mean, it, it, it it's not going to be perfect or a foolproof system necessarily to ask someone to do a self-examination where they will always pick up dangerous things. But 50% of melanomas are noticed by the patient before they're noticed, instead of being noticed by the doctor when they come in for the examination. You know, in terms of that, there's ways that you can look for things like melanoma. The two main ways are, you know, the ABCDs, which uh, is an acronym that stands mm-hmm. for asymmetry. Um, B is irregular borders. If they're notched borders, if it isn't perfectly round, C is color variation. If it's one color, that tends to be a good sign. And these aren't all hard and fast rules, obviously, but, you know, if it tends to have multiple colors like blue, black, brown, um, it tends to be more of an ominous sort of thing. Uh, D's diameter, which diameter greater than six millimeters, which is about half the size of your pinky nail can be an ominous, ominous sign. But once again, to reiterate, these, these aren't hard and fast rules. And E is evolution. Does it bleed? Mm-hmm. Is it itch? Is it new? So that's, those are the ABCDEs to look for in terms of factors. The second sign that I frequently employ, and I ask patients to employ as well too, I don't know about you, Beth, but the ugly duckling sign, where if a mole just looks mm, different yes. or a spot <laughs> just looks different than the other spots, even if it doesn't fulfill the ABCDE That's what brought me in the bath. The ugly duckling criteria, correct. And I didn't call it that. It's like, Mm-hmm. What the heck? <laughs> My differential right. is not mm-hmm. quite that sure. wrong. Well, the Mayo Clinic here in Scottsdale actually did a study on the ugly duckling, uh, the ugly duckling criteria as a way to detect or self-detect melanoma and found there's some real validity in that, where even if it doesn't fulfill the ABCDE criteria, that that is a legitimate way to potentially find, you, you know, da- dangerous or concerning things on your body. So, I have found a melanoma that was two millimeters mm-hmm. and I have found a round, perfectly round melanoma. So, that's crazy. so that's what it's important to remember that those are general guidelines, but not. Right. It's just crazy. It can be almost anything. And I know people mm-hmm. have had melanoma, any little change that they have, they're like running in it. A lot of people are going, is it or is it not? Right. It's interesting on the forums are like all taking photos. So, you know, everybody's like, when in doubt, check it out. You know, I feel like everybody's over and over and over, get a check, get a check. And how many do come back as melanomas and stuff like that. Can we, can we step back one, one notch and tell us a little bit about uh, basal cell versus squamous cell versus melanoma. Go for oh, it, Beth. Me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they come from different layers of the skin, from different types of cells. And basal cell is technically, you would maybe say the most common. Yeah, that's, a, that's common. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to know like what they tend to look like or? Oh, you or... could yeah, that. And just if you know any like just pearls, because we know with basal cell, like usually with a basal cell, you know, we don't have to worry about it metastasizing. That, but there That's are exceptions, totally right? True, yeah. Mm. Not and totally so true. I think that helping people understand, don't get a false sense of security about anything when it comes to this stuff. So I was kind of curious what your takes on all this, because when most, most people say, oh, base saw, I don't have to worry about it. You know, I got to get it removed, but it, there's no, it's good metastasized. Squamous cell, as we know, is like a really interesting bird because a lot of times we never do find the primary. And so if you, you know, just kind of like you guys could just chat well, amongst you about that. The, the, basal, <clears throat> the basal cell, I think, I've heard of it metastasizing like it's since it's locally invasive, like if it's on the the face of a, a 
older lady who's had it for like 50 okay. years or something like mm-hmm. that and it's eaten through okay. you know to her brain you know that would be bad right right um but um and then if you have certain conditions where you get hundreds and hundreds of basal cells wow those you know they have more risk for getting what you say yeah for metastasizing yeah. for for a local destruction i mean there's yeah for the about for the approximately five million uh, skin cancers that are that are diagnosed in the U.S. Um, the vast majority are basal cell about four point three million are basal cell carcinoma mm-hmm. so that's a good number of basal cells that are yeah. diagnosed in the U.S. around one million are squamous cells and then around eight hundred thousand are melanomas annually in terms of the uh, prevalence of the top three there's also more esoteric types of skin cancers as Beth pointed out like Merkel cell. Things of that nature. But those are the three main ones. Yeah, basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma. Basal cell accounts for the vast majority, as I mentioned, of skin cancers and non-melanoma skin cancers. It accounts for about 3,000 deaths annually, though, as well, too. So that's something to to bear in mind, where even I think as a dermatologist, and a lot of dermatologists uh, like myself tend to lose track of that statistic, it's not uniformly non-lethal. It's not something that will never get you. 3,000, you know, is a low number compared to other cancer deaths in the United States, but it, it's not trivial. You know, I have patients who, you know, will develop multiple basal cells and sometimes lose track of the or lose sight of the fact that they are skin cancers mm-hmm. and they can ultimately result in your demise, which they can. And it's unusual, but if you leave one untreated mm-hmm. for a while, local that, destruction yeah. is, yeah, more much more of a concern. Metastasis, although people say it's impossible, it's not impossible. I agree with you, Beth. It, it can happen rarely, but local destruction is what can. Mm-hmm frequently lead to morbidity in terms of it invading a nerve, you know, muscle, Mm -hmm. something to the effect where you don't feel sensation in a certain area or you can't move a certain muscle on your face. Or if it's on the nose, it can erode into an artery and, you know, cause, you know, cause, you know, death even in those regards. So 3,000 deaths a year. And squamous cell has, is, is, is about a third as common as basal cells, I would say, or a quarter as common potentially. It is one that can spread. There's varied statistics on cutaneous or skin squamous cell with how right. frequently it can spread. The New England Journal of Medicine had an article that said it can spread 5% of the time, which I think was exaggerated, you know, from, from my experience. Oh. I don't know about yours. Do you remember well what the, is it 20,000 deaths a year? Or yeah, it's it, around 50. You're exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right. 50, yeah, 50, 15, 15 oh, to 15 20, to 20? You're exactly okay. right. Um, okay. You're, you're exactly okay. right. It's, uh, it's about a, a quarter as common as basal cell, but it results in five times as many, five to six oh, times mm-hmm. as many deaths. So still unusual for it to spread, but it, it, it is not unheard of. I, I've mm-hmm. seen it happen several times personally mm-hmm. where it's an easy thing for patients to lose sight of when they tend to get multiple skin cancers. Because once you get one skin cancer, you do tend to get others or you're at a risk for getting others. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had two so far. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping no more, but you know. <laughs> And, and what's interesting in my career is a lot of times uh, with squamous cell, they, it was diagnosed someone came in with lymphadenopathy. They had small lymph nodes like mm. in an axillary area and we noticed a lesion like underneath a nail or something like that. Mm. And I've had a couple other patients where they had squamous cells like in the throats and stuff like oh. that. And, you know, they come in and they have, again, lymphadenopathy and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And sometimes you don't even find the primary. And what we mean by primary is the lesion where all of this started. Yeah, something as simple as that. That's how it's primary people say about primary. Mm-hmm. But you guys are probably more fancy about primary. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's essentially the same definition, I'd yeah. say. The, yeah, the primary side. You know, the vast majority of squamous cells we do see on cutaneous squamous cells or skin mm-hmm. squamous cells are primary. And it's, it's a, it tends to be a different animal on the skin and that it tends to be, have less of a tendency to be lethal on the skin than it does in the mm-hmm. lung, let's say, or the, or the throat, the ears, nose, and throat right. as well, too. Or, or the nail, even. It tends to be 
a more dangerous condition with internal squamous cell as opposed to cutaneous. But cutaneous can spread, as I mentioned. And I've seen it result in that for patients, but it's easily treatable. Melanoma is the one that, yeah, you know, so basal cell about, you know, you know as I mentioned, four, 4 million cases of basal cell annually, about a million cases of squamous cell. Melanoma is around, you know, seven to 800,000 cases of, uh, I'm sorry, I might, I might have said that incorrectly, actually. It's, uh, melanoma, melanoma is about 178,000 cases right. a year. So it's far less common than basal or squamous cell. We tend to, we tend to uh, lump basal and squamous cell into non-melanoma skin cancers, which okay. account for the vast majority of skin yeah. cancers out there. And then there's mm-hmm. melanoma, which if caught early has the potential to be uh, cured easily. You know, 50% of melanomas are caught at a melanoma in situ phase. So so it isn't, you know, what people think it is and that, you know, and that it is very treatable if caught early and such as well too. And, you know, patients who get basal cell and squamous cell, we do like to see them more frequently in the mm-hmm. office, probably twice a year or so because of the potential for getting things such as melanoma and the idea that if you do develop one that ideally you'll have the best chance of catching it early. So yeah, those are the three main types of skin cancers. Mm -hmm. You guys are really lucky in your office. You have a Mohs surgeon, Dr. Janik. Um, Mm -hmm. Beth, can you tell us a little bit of what Mohs surgery is all about? Sure. So what they do is they take the piece of skin where the biopsy was taken that was either basal or squamous, Mm -hmm. and then they mark it with some dye color, like like a clock, like 12, 3, 6, and 9. And then they freeze it and they look at it under the microscope and they see if there's a little bit more cancer at the edge. They look at, they slice it differently than they do for regular dermatopathology. Mm-hmm. And so they can see all the edges. And so they may say, oh, there's a little more cancer at 3 o'clock. And then they go cut that piece out and they mark that little piece like a clock. So they know where in this, on the skin, how it's oriented and they can find where they need to go back and take some more. So they keep following it till they get clear margins. Okay, so for melanoma in situ, do you do most? Yeah, that's that's controversial, but it does um, happen. It's you know, it, it is it's really the discretion of the most surgeon. I wouldn't say it's a standard procedure that's employed currently. Mm-hmm. You know, most surgery is predominantly utilized for non-melanoma skin cancer, like okay. basal cell and squamous cell. You know, the goal of most surgery is to provide a cure at the time of treatment that is ideally definitive and to do so by evaluating 100% of the margins of what you remove, which mm-hmm. theoretically a standard excision where you bread loaf through an excision. If you, could, if you could picture an ellipse of skin removed from a standard excision with your bread loaf, it theoretically you're not evaluating the full margin. But if you're taking standard margins as you would with a melanoma, you presume that the surgeon who did that took sufficient margins where you're, you're evaluating proper sample pieces to ensure that ideally the samples are representative of the, of the whole ellipse that was removed. Most, surg- most specimens are actually processed as opposed to vertically, which standard excisions are. They're processed mm-hmm. horizontally or in FOSS is what they call it, where oh, theoretically... Yeah. They evaluate the entire peripheral and deep margin, and they do so by removing, you know, a variable amount of skin around the clinical margin that the most surgeon sees, and he or she removes that, you know, marks it, as Beth mentioned, you know, which is completely correct to orient it, and then subsequently it's processed horizontally or in FOSS um, while the patient is still in the office. So... They wait while the specimen is processed, 
And then after it is processed, it's brought to the most surgeon, Dr. Janik at our practice, who mm-hmm. evaluates the margins at the periphery and at the deep margin to see if the specimen removed has any residual at those margins. It's utilized pretty frequently for non-melanoma skin cancers in cosmetically sensitive areas like the scalp, the face, the nose, the ears, the lips. Those are areas, the hands, the fingers, the feet, the lower extremities. And there's criteria that guide the usage of moles, not you know set in stone criteria where you can't do moles on a skin cancer that doesn't fulfill this criteria, but it includes size, area, type of basal cell, type of squamous cell. Right. There's multiple mm-hmm. criteria that, that, that guide the utilization of MOS, um, which is a very, very, you know, big uh, tool that we have in our armamentarium of treating skin cancer. Yeah, it's exciting because patients have a sense of relief when they know it's, mm-hmm. you've, we've got it all closure, we're right. good to go. And so folks with melanoma, because that's been a discussion, people are like, do you do most work, do you right. not? And so that's one of the things, you know, that we're, we're learning that it's wide excision, right? I've seen, mm-hmm. I've seen uh, them do for lentigo maligna. So mm-hmm. it's a real a special kind of melanoma that look, typically looks like a sunspot on the mm-hmm. face. Um, you have to have special stain for mm-hmm. it, though. And not very many most surgeons will do that. But there are, there's at least one. In the no, you're exactly <laughs> right. And melanoma and side do exactly what Beth said is one, mm-hmm. lentical malignant, especially in a cosmetically sensitive area like your face, nose, ears, where you don't have the luxury of taking five to seven millimeter margins, right. which you likely would, or five, five to one centimeter, five millimeters to one centimeter margins for an insight to melanoma. You know, in the nose, you don't have the luxury of taking that. But Mose is being utilized by some Mose surgeons for melanoma in situ, predominantly as opposed to invasive melanomas, sometimes invasive melanomas, to remove it with uh, the idea of giving a complete cure and tissue conservation for these cosmetically sensitive areas. The right. biggest reason is not it is not widely being used is that due to the nature of what a basal cell or squamous cell looks like under the microscope pathologically. Mose lends itself to an easier, more definitive diagnosis, meaning, meaning the way a Mose section on FOSS is processed, mm-hmm. it's easier for a Mose surgeon to recognize residual basal cell or squamous cell within that specimen. What Beth said is entirely correct. With something like melanoma in situ, the way a Mose section comes out being processed on FOSS horizontally, nice. yeah, it is it is much more technically difficult for the most surgeon to determine whether there's melanoma still present or not. And as Beth correctly pointed out, frequently it does involve having to utilize certain stains to identify the melanocytes within mm-hmm. the specimen. It, it's just not as clear cut as to whether a most procedure can give you a confident cure yeah. Just, yeah, after, after, after it's finished that day. And, and I love the word cure because that's where mm-hmm. I was headed next. <laughs> well, kind of, you went right to cure. Mm-hmm. Can, can melanoma be cured? Well, theoretically, it can be in that, you know, I teach melanoma pathology to the medical students at University of Arizona, College of Medicine, Phoenix, where I'm an assistant professor there. I do two lectures there. One's on uh, basic skin pathology. The other one's on melanoma pathology. The way we think about melanoma conceptually, which may or may not be true, to be uh, perfectly honest with you, but it seems like it is. It hasn't been proven otherwise. Is that you know, there's two growth phase to is to it. There, there's a radial growth phase, and then there's a, a vertical growth phase. The radial growth phase is ideally or likely when it's still in sight to, 
and or micro-invasive. At that point, it hasn't achieved the potential to metastasize. But then um, once it hits a vertical growth phase, the potential has been achieved. And, you know, it's really not set in stone where it, when it hits the um, vertical growth phase and when it's still in the radial growth phase. But theoretically, if you catch a melanoma before it is in the vertical growth phase or while it's still in the radial growth phase and you excise it or remove it, right. theoretically, there's no residual. Theoretically, it is cured. Yeah, if you're if you have that type of melanoma, but if you have some something that's more nodular that has more of a vertical growth phase, it's a little bit more of a slippery slope, which by people know that was my diagnosis. And it's one of those things where again, like even my melanoma didn't have black multiple colors. It was more of a fleshy color. It was ugly. It was a little scaly. And that's when I started freaking out a little bit more about it. And my husband did. I gotta give him credit and said, You better go see Beth now or else. <laughs> If it's okay, Beth, I'm gonna, five minutes with this about pathology because there's a lot of commu- uh, confusion about pathology. So first of all, like, can you can you explain like a little bit more about depth? Sure. And once you get over like, you know, one millimeter, two millimeters, you know, kind of like what the standards are. And then people right now are really hung up on ulceration. They're hung up on mitotic rate. And what in my pathology report is really my good news and my uh-oh. Sure. Maybe possible not so happy news. No, absolutely. So with the pathological diagnosis of melanoma, there's a standard protocol we use. Um, Essentially, when we diagnose a melanoma or evaluate something we think is a melanoma, we that the first thing we try to determine is whether it's a melanoma in situ or invasive melanoma. And that'll be on the pathology report as well, too. So there's about 800,000 cases of melanoma diagnosed annually in the United States. About 50% of those are in situ. So in situ means that it's confined to the layers of the epidermis. It's a stage zero if it's in situ. So 50% of melanomas that we find in the U.S. are in situ, which means theoretically at that point that an excision would cure it. Theoretically, it hasn't hit the uh, point where it can metastasize. So if you see in situ on your pathology report, that tends to be a good thing and tends to be associated with a 99% five-year cure rate. Now, um, if the melanoma, there's three, the major layers of the epidermis and then subcutaneous fat or the epidermis, dermis, a skin, I should say, epidermis, dermis, and subcutaneous fat. So melanoma in situ is uh, restricted to the uppermost layer of the skin, which is the epidermis. Mm -hmm. If you have uh, invasive melanoma, which 50% of melanomas diagnosed in the United States are invasive, it, it can mean a broad variety of things. I have a lot of patients who come into the office where they see the word invasive, think that, you know, that's that, but not necessarily. And, you know, well, what, what you pointed out about Breslow thickness, or you mentioned thickness, mm-hmm. ulceration, mitotic rate. So the... I'd say when you see that it's not in situ and it says malignant melanoma, and usually it'll see below and list a number of uh, rows right. that talk about the features which you alluded to. Right. The, the most important one I would say in there is the Breslau thickness, mm-hmm. where Breslau thickness, which I teach the medical students, which is a fact, is the biggest prognostic, the most important prognostic indicator for melanoma mm-hmm. as to whether it's a good prognosis or a less than good prognosis. Less than one millimeter, give or take, is what you're sort of looking at. The criteria are reasonably modified so that it's 0.8 millimeters, but within that realm, 0.8 to one millimeter is what you're looking for, where if it's less than one millimeter in Breslau thickness and it doesn't have a mitotic figures or ulceration, that's a very good prognosis as well, too. 95 to 99% five-year cure rate as well, too. So those are invasive melanomas that have a good cure rate. 
You know, after a Breslau thickness of eight millimeters to one centimeter or 10 millimeters, you know, depending on what criteria you're using at that point, that's when we frequently recommend a sentinel lymph node biopsy right. as well, which you're familiar with for additional prognostic information. So the Breslau thickness is the biggest prognostic indicator or the most important one that one should look at, at their, on their pathology pull report after seeing whether it's in situ or not. The other criteria you mentioned, which are interesting, are ulceration and mitotic figures. And ulceration, I'd say, more so than mitotic figures at this point, likely tends to be a criteria that is also important in giving us prognostic information mm -hmm. where it upstages you to the point where you may need or may be recommended a sentinel lymph node biopsy, which is the next prognostic step if you do have ulceration which, you know, means a, a breakdown in the epidermis, dermis area, secondary to the melanoma. Um, and, that, you know, this, so that, that is an important thing to look for in an in invasive melanoma if it's not in situ because ulceration, Breslau depth, and mitotic figures only apply to invasive melanomas. Mitotic figures used to be a more important criteria, which is interesting because it used to upstage you where if your Breslau thickness was less than a millimeter, which is the uh, you know magic number that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. it would upstage you to the point where ideally you would consider getting a sentinel lymph node biopsy. But that's no longer the case in the new criteria, right. which is interesting because they found that it's potentially less important than we thought it was, where it is important and it tends to be a poor prognostic indicator, but not necessarily as poor of a prognostic indicator as we thought in the past. How about Clark's? That's a, that is a great question and a great point because I, I love that question because a lot of patients tend to focus on Clark's level and it, there's a lot of inter-observer and inter-pathologist variability with a Clark's level. Not so much with certain ones. Clark level zero means, which we don't even list in a melanoma in situ because we don't list the mm -hmm. synoptic, you know, was universally accepted as restricted to the epidermis. Clark level two means it's in the papillary dermis or the superficial dermis. Clark level three is filling the papillary dermis. Clark level four is the reticular dermis. Clark level five is in the fat. And that, that's, you know, essentially how it is delineated. Clark level has some inter observer or pathology, pathologist variability where some pathologists will call it Clark level three, some will call it Clark level four. Even if you see Clark level four on your pathology report, you still could have a 95 to 99% cure rate, which is something I find myself explaining to, you know, numerous patients that I come in. They tend to focus on the number. They, they, they freak out. Yeah. Yes. Everybody freaks out. And yes. I was reading a couple of those studies in the last months because mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, I'm interested in it. Now. Sure. Um, and I was really interested about how the Clark wasn't as significant anymore and, and but and mitotic rate because mm -hmm. that's what you hear on these forums all the time. They're like, oh, for you. I'm a Clark forum. My mitotic rate is for whatever. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm done. And I'm like, not necessarily. Agreed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so that's cool. Mm -hmm. So everybody <laughs> hear hear what the important stuff is, right? Mm -hmm. They're Breslow thickness. Mm -hmm. And the other important stuff is, you know, mitotic's not as important, but ulceration is important. And just the overall just look of this thing. And of course, everybody that I've talked to pretty much over one millimeter is getting these sentinel node biopsies. Sure. And that's kind of like a real interesting bird there, there when I had mine done, that nuclear die kind of hurts going in there, guys. It kind of burns. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and then they trace it to those lymph nodes and stuff like that. But, mm -hmm. um, that's cool. So, you know, we're learning about that. 
what we're learning too is like with with melanomas like mine you know i have a, a melanosotic uh, melanoma and basically i was a 2.03 and i was a clark 4 and basically um when i had my white excision basically that's pretty much what I ex- ended up excising out. So it wasn't any deeper or anything like that. And there wasn't any like micrometastasis around it, which is cool, stuff like that. But I did end up with two areas of my lymph nodes, less than one millimeter of micrometastasis. What does that mean? Because I've had some questions about, well, is it significant? Is it not significant? And 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 other people like have, you know, that and, and they have like these big honking lymph nodes and they're like seeding into the lymph beds. What does that mean? Because uh, mm-hmm. people are asking about that too. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, with with lymph node involvement, you know, there's and, and they've changed this criteria a bit too with the new AJCC criteria as well. Before it used to be macrometastasis, which meant that you could feel the lymph nodes mm-hmm. clinically on clinical examination, and micrometastasis meant that you couldn't feel them clinically, mm-hmm. but it was detected on a sentinel lymph node biopsy in terms of lymph node involvement. Now it's clinically occult versus clinic. I forget the word clinically obvious or clinically apparent. Yeah, okay. for that. Cult, yeah. Correct. And, you know, the significance of that does depend on whether it, it, you can feel the lymph nodes occultly versus mm-hmm. whether it is a micrometast, which is whether it is micro involvement mm-hmm. and micro involvement tends to have a better prognosis as well and you know the factors to consider with that what your prognosis is versus not is the staging workup at that point which we uh, beth and i frequently rely on, on rely on oncologists for right. in terms of looking for distant metastasis which would you put you at a stage four at that point versus if you just have lymph node involvement you're going to be likely at a stage three right. or something lesser, which is an important distinction because at that point, you know, there is a, you know, reasonably uh, different survival difference, you, you know, you know, with lymph node involvement, give or take, you know, which varies based on micrometastasis versus clinically, you know, apparent lymph adenopathy, you have about, you know, 60%, give or take, five-year survival, 20% with distant metastasis. Those numbers also, I can't say are purely valid either because the numbers I've heard are before uh, have, have truly been, you know, generated from numbers we had before our new and exciting, you know, meta, you know, melanoma therapies that are available. Right. Immunotherapies. Exactly. Love them. Exciting. Optivo is my friend <laughs> every two weeks. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's the thing. I think like 10 years ago, these kind of diagnosis, a person like me would go, wow, I may not be around in five or 10 years, <laughs> but now there's so much hope. And with, you know, the, the work that you're doing on your, your end and what the oncologists and the surgeons are doing and, your, and the me- medical team, it's just really exciting to know that there's so many more options. You know, in the old days, it used to be chemotherapy, you know, for these mm-hmm. poor folks. And then I guess inter- interferon was horrible. Mm-hmm. But the um, therapist, I got to ask you a question. This is another thing that comes up a lot. When I saw you guys, uh, Beth kind of was like, hey, you know, just so you know more, do you want a castle test? Can you explain, Beth, about what the Castle test is? And there's been a lot of questions about that too. About like, is it valid? Is it what kind of information? Is it accurate? Like, what what is the Castle test? I'm glad you asked that. I just came back from a big dermatology conference in Colorado Springs, and the speakers were very in favor of getting Castle tests on everyone. Uh, they can't do it on in situ, but they can do it on all the other melanomas. Okay. And it's gene expression profiling, and they take the genes from the actual biopsy that you don't have to give them any more tissue. They just take the slides from what you've already taken, and then they take the tissue out of there. They test the genes, and they see whether someone is 
at risk, more likely to have a recurrence of their melanoma or very low likely to have a recurrence. So they felt like it was probably just as, it seemed like just as good as having a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Really? Having the test. They were very in favor of it. Yeah, I was amazed. I was like, wow, okay. okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and, and like you say, with recurrence, I think it's so critical to know, like, let's say you're a 2A two, two or 2B two mm-hmm. and you're walking around thinking that you're a no evidence of disease or a cure. And then all of a sudden, you know, 10 years down the road, you go in, you have abdominal pain, you've got a cough, you get metastatic melanoma or something like that. And to have that information. Now, the question is, is like when we look at all that, we don't have enough data points to show down the road with immunotherapy right. what it right. means to mm-hmm. us. Like, I'll be honest, everybody, I got the worst one. I was 2B. So I have a 30 some percent chance of recurrence or what 60 percent chance of recurrence but it's it's up there and so but we don't know with immunotherapy what that means for this particular stupid dumb melanoma that i got my arm right and so did they allude to that at all um they didn't talk about that aspect of it they just said that the person with the 2b should have an mri or ct every six months for the first four years first four years i'm getting pet scans yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pet. Yeah. Because, and, and, and that was the, the other thing yeah. is, that, you know, the pet scans, because supposedly, you know, if, because of the pick uptake at sure stuff like that, you'll, you'll pick it at very, very early stages where with CT and MRI, oh, what okay. happens is that it's going to have to be a bigger lesion or it's going to be missed. Oh, okay. So that's my understanding. Right. So when I talked to my oncologist, we were electing to try to get the insurance to pay for pet and a pet is like $6,000 a shot. Oh, yeah. Um, so literally with me, I had a PET scan, but I never got CTs or MRIs. Right. I did, we just went for PET. So I was kind of curious what they're doing with that. Really? With that. Well, that's they. That's what they the had recognition. said um, now. But I mean, if you can get a PET, that's even better. Right? Yeah, that's different. I mean, yeah, this goes beyond, it, you know, my expertise to a certain degree. My sister's a radiation oncologist, though, so I ask her these questions all the time. I think it's, you know, situationally, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. You're absolutely right with the patent sensitivity and such. Um, I I think the CT scan, if you're looking for specific things, does have a greater chance of, you know, getting, you know, uh, positive, meaningful findings, you know, in certain situations. It's, it's, It's really nuanced and, you know, difficult to say which one is appropriate for each case versus not. I've seen literature favoring CT MRIs. I've seen literature favoring pets. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion out there there about it. There is in terms of basically evaluating for distant metastasis or spread in general with melanoma is just, you know, littered with controversy and how you do, you know, what what you do. But, 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 you know, Beth brought up an important point. How do you follow these patients? Mm-hmm. You know, what tests do you do? I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to hear that there is some guidance now with, you know, considering every six, in, imaging every six months or so. And, you know, the even if that hasn't been set in stone as a guideline, it's a step towards developing guidelines because now, you know, f- you know, full disclosure as a, as a conflict of interest, I've, I've been on the advisory board for Castle as well, too. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm familiar with, with, with their test and, we don't have a good set in stone guideline way to necessarily follow folks or patients that have later stage melanomas as to this is what you do if you have that. It, 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 it's a it's bit just, it's more. An art. Exactly. And it's, yeah. it's an art and nuances. Provider. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it was interesting for me is like, I just wanted to have as much information as possible. And so when I got that, I was like, okay, what other good news are we going to sure. get? But at least you know 
But I'm going to be really curious. And I think you guys are going to be curious with these immunotherapies mm -hmm. if they pick the right ones. Now, one of the things I read about the immunotherapies that are really cool is that if you have a, a melanoma that's more genetically crazy, they respond to the immunotherapies better. You know, so that is really interesting to me. Hey, so the other test test that you do, and, and like I said, I know this isn't your expertise okay. necessarily, is the BRAF testing. And do you guys know, like maybe your sister could allude to this sometime, is there any relationship between BRAF and BRCA? To the best of my understanding, you know, if we're speaking to her as well, too, uh, I mean, there be there may be a loose association, but, you, you know, B, B, BRAF has certain cancers that are associated with its mutation and BRCA has certain cancers like breast cancer right. as well too. And I mean, it, it's the best of my understanding that it hasn't been fully elucidated. Those are specific mutations we do look for when we do genetic counseling for patients who we think may have a genetic predisposition to getting things like melanoma. We do ask them if they've had a history of breast cancer as well too. And then we'll test for uh, BRCA and BRAF, um, among other tests that generally a, a geneticist will do as well. And, to, and those yeah. are really, really yeah. cool tests. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it gives you more information. Do you have the gene? Uh, and medicine, I think, like how it's being practiced now or even like 20 years ago, how it's going to be practiced in the next 15 years is going to be really exciting. <laughs> so so for us to be able to look at these immunotherapies and see, you know, are they working? Or, and there's all sorts of, you know, the targeted therapies and all that kind of stuff, which... Um, gives us all hope. I mean, the more information, the better, you know, and that, that excites me and it excites everybody that does have melanoma. It's just, we wish there's more, I think more data points of like, how are we going to treat? Like after I'm done with my immunotherapy at the end of the year, like, okay, do we get those rogue cells and we're good to go? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, am I still a walking time bomb? And, but nobody's going to be able to tell you that. You just got to live life. I mean, the landscape for late stage melanoma or melanoma that is spread to lymph nodes or metastasize has been, it, it, it's a completely different game now. It's been a game changer with this immunotherapy. I mean, the treatment paradigm in general is exactly what you said, you know, figuring out if a patient is BRAF positive versus negative, which is a potential mutation that you can have in a melanoma. And um, if you're BRAF positive, they'll put you on immunotherapy that will specifically target BRAF mutations. And then uh, frequently, you know, as the standard of care is is evolving, it seems that combination, you know, immunotherapy as well too is something that many oncologists consider or utilize. Where if, there be, if a patient's BRAF positive, we use a BRAF inhibitor and then a MEK inhibitor, which will target another uh, downstream element that can be involved in melanoma pathogenesis. And if you're BRAF negative, immunotherapy where you use cell death uh, and you know target cell death uh, mechanisms like PD one inhibitors, and then combining that with other immunotherapy, where it's a much more targeted therapy, which is exactly what you mentioned, interferon in the future. I've heard so many, you know, inter, in the, excuse me, interferon in the past. I've heard right. so many, you know, horror stories about it, where it had a high rate of side effects and not very impressed with curates associated with melanoma, you know, at the very least is what I'd say. You know, think it's completely different now with this targeted therapy where patients who in the past wouldn't have done so are living longer and longer because they'll have, you know, imaging verified or radiographically verified, um, uh, you know, regression or remission of their melanoma, which is something we didn't see at the rates that we do now, which is a very exciting thing. And that's what, 
you know, I tell a lot of patients, you know, in terms of patients who are scared to come in because they don't want to know they have something. Right, I mean, there's right, so right. Many you see more. a lot of those. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And there's just so many more options available these days, which are having longer lasting responses for patients. It wasn't, it's no longer that bazooka effect that you alluded to before, where you just sort of blast someone, for lack of a better word, with a nonspecific chemotherapy that doesn't have a great chance of working as a high potential for side effects. These are very targeted immunotherapies, which I love that word, that have a higher rate of success because they're targeting, you know, melanoma pathogenesis specifically as opposed to other cancers. So there's hope out there, everybody. And yes, melanoma can kill. It can kill people. And again, for those people out there that say skin cancer is no big deal, I think what you're learning today from Neil and Beth is that it is a big deal and we need to take a lot more serious And for the rest of my life, that's going to be in the forefront of what I need to deal with. So, okay, a couple couple things. Sunscreens, SPF factors, how high should they be? The most recent evidence actually shows, and this has been controversial, as Beth knows as well, too. Initially, we used to say, you know, 30 or above before it was 15 or above. You know, SPF stands for sun protection factor. The uh, true meaning of that means that, the true meaning of that is as follows. If you have an SPF factor of 30 in a sunscreen, it theoretically means that it will take you 30 times as long to burn from sun exposure than if you don't have that sunscreen applied. You know, whether or not that's the case in real life is another question, but they have found most recently that high SPF factors are associated with greater responses. In the past, we used to think that 30 above or above was sufficient. And Truth be told, it's arguable whether it still is, you know, but there are more and more studies that are showing the higher the SPF factor, the better. Now, what I tell patients in practice, though, is that as SPF factor increases, it is more difficult to convince yourself to put on a thicker, less cosmetically or aesthetically appealing sunscreen. And if you're not going to wear an SPF 70 sunscreen, but you'd rather wear an SPF 30, you may as well wear the SPF 30 because it's better than not wearing anything. It continues to be controversial, but now the research says that the higher the SPF, the better. But I tell patients, you know, 30 or above is what you should aim for because there is sufficient evidence to indicate that 30 or 30 or above is better than 15 or mm-hmm. above. But even 15 or above, there's studies that show that if you consistently wear 15 or above, that you can reduce your risk of melanoma by 50%. There is a few studies that show that. Patients so. tend to not wear mm-hmm. enough and sure. they tend to not reapply. Right. Both of those factors make me tend to at least go closer to 50, you know, Mm -hmm. because they're not putting on enough and not as often. So. So and the other thing is people still think sun is good. You should still go out there and get your vitamin D through the sun. What do you think, Beth? Well, we know that not all people actually manufacture vitamin D in their skin as efficiently. So they may be out there and not getting the vitamin D and actually just creating skin cancer. Right. So I definitely feel it's safer to uh, take your oral vitamin D pill Mm -hmm. and wear your sunscreen. D3. (laughs) And yep. And uh, they they said at the conference that 85% of your sun exposure is actually coming at you sideways from like reflection and things and not. So the hats are great. And the sun protection shirts like I'm wearing right now uh, are great. Right. You know, you'd still need to wear, you still need to wear sunscreen. So definitely. And tanning booths are? They're very bad. Mm. Very bad. They increase your risk of melanoma six times over 
just one one episode in the tanning bed, six times over normal. Yeah, so, and you wonder why we have so many tanning beds, people, especially in Arizona. People say, "Oh, I did. I only did it once or a few times before a trip." You know, <laughs> right? So it so in wrapping up, if there's something that you could really, really take home to people that are listening to your patients, to your you know coworkers about skin cancers, about skin protection, protecting yourself, avoiding what I'm going through, what would the message be? I would like to tell people that who say they never go outside, that going from your car to the store is considered going outside. The sun is still getting you and the little bits of sun you're getting are adding up. And so people need to take those situations seriously. And also there is a pill that was actually a supplement that was very, very well promoted at the conference too, that um, helps with uh, prevention of skin cancer. And it's called HelioCare. Kilo care. Yeah. yeah. You know, somebody asked me to ask about that. Yeah. Actually, I'm glad you brought you, that up. So it's, it. so it's real? Yeah, it's real. And the, the doctors were very, uh, they said they give it to all their skincare patients, skin cancer patients. And you get on Amazon or I know Walgreens has it. One patient said she got it at CVS. Um, but that should be all over the place. So it's made out of a South American uh, fern plant mm-hmm. and it's a very powerful antioxidant. And so that's, um, they're saying they're seeing a lot less skin cancer with that, taking that supplement daily. So I'm going to start telling people to do that more. <laughs> right on, right on. Is there any other pearls from the conference that really stuck out that you'd want to share with people? Oh. Well, those were the, well, those are probably the big ones. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. Neil. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing to, that I would like to get out to everyone out there is just go to your local dermatology office and get a skin check. If you haven't done so already, you know, worst case, you end up not having anything but skin cancer. I could talk about it all day, all night, you know, forever, <laughs> the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It is just so rampant. It's not one of those, not to disparage other cancers, but it's not one of those cancers that you, that people rarely get. It is beyond common. You know, the statistic I said before, one in three, one in three Caucasian people oh. will develop skin cancer. It happens commonly. Um, go to the dermatologist. There are no set in stone frequency guidelines for how often patients should get a skin check. I, I, I recommend going in annually once a year, or at least mm-hmm. get a baseline skin examination and determine what you should do going forward at your local dermatology office. And then inspect yourself as well, too. You know, 50% of melanomas are found by the patient. Don't be shy about looking at your body. Look at your forearms. Look at your chest. Look at your neck. Look, look at everywhere. your abdomen. Look everywhere. Yeah. Exactly, Beth. Look everywhere. Your back. Have your, use a system of mirrors or have your significant other. Look at your back as well, too. I have a fair number of patients, spouses, or significant others who find things on their back. It is not by any means unusual. So look yourself and have a professional look mm-hmm. for you, um, ideally annually if you can. You know, that would be uh, the biggest word of advice I would give to people. I sure hope it becomes a standard of care, just like colonoscopies. Seriously, mm-hmm. it should be, mm-hmm. especially uh, with this the statistics and data that are coming forward. How do I thank you guys? Uh, Beth, Neil, you guys are amazing. Skin and Cancer Center of Arizona is amazing place. Dr. Wolk uh, used to say hi to you in the parking lot. You have touched my heart and the people that you've brought to your facility, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys and the hard work that you do. And referrals will keep coming uh, from a lot of people that I know. And thank you so much. Remember, it's all about best of health. Remember, 
Your health is your business. Have a great one. We'll see you next month. Take care. Bye.